Um, and I need to find my listening sheet. So while you find your listening sheet, I think I have one right over here. I do, right here. And you need to find yours as well. Uh, the text at the top will be our, our text for this morning that we're going to read out loud together. So make sure you have one of these. Uh, and we'll stand and let's read this text together. This then is the text for today. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. May God bless the reading of his word. If, if you're not aware, and you may not be, uh, one of the unifying uh, things of our church is, is we do the same scripture across the entire week and across our services. And this week, that was 1 Corinthians 8, all of the chapter. And 1 Corinthians 10, kind of the, the back portion of 1 Corinthians 10. And you, you get to read a portion of it together uh, with us in the service. But no, there's a greater context for all of this scripture that we read. And in fact, in, in today's uh, sermon, you may want to go ahead and, and open your scriptures to 1 Corinthians um, 8, because uh, we'll, we'll get there in, in just a little bit. Uh, before we do, let's talk about Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, Leonardo's largest surviving panel is a piece of art entitled The Adoration of the Magi. Uh, Leonardo painted uh, this beautiful work of Mary holding the infant Jesus. And as she's holding Jesus, there are all kinds of visitors that are coming in around them, people all over the scene, the, the Magi and everyone else coming in around them. And, and it's a beautiful picture that, that Leonardo painted in 1481 in Florence, Italy. But through 500 years, there have come layers and layers of dust and grime over the, the top of the piece. And not only that, at some point along the way, somebody thought it would be nice to add varnish over the top of the piece. And so through time, the whole thing was completely altered. Time caused the boards in the back to crack. And that caused the face of it to crack and, and the colors began to fade, and the masterpiece was deteriorating, as all earthly things do. Then the Italian culture ministry took it upon themselves to restore this priceless masterpiece. Painstakingly, they worked for six years to restore this masterpiece, to fix it, to, to get it back to the ideal place, the ideal picture that it once was. And amazingly, this restoration gave the piece a new life, um, far more than any of them dreamed it would. As, as they were restoring this, restoring this piece of art, they found several figures that were hidden under dirt that no one had seen before, or at least not in a couple hundred years. And as they, they kept taking layers and layers away, they saw the sky in an original light blue. The faces in the crowd were more expressive. There was a newfound depth 
to the entire piece. It was as if the, the painting came alive when the restorers cleaned 500 years of filth off the face. The masterpiece was restored. And in some sense, this is what has happened or is happening to creation. Creation itself was the grand masterpiece of our God. But with the addition of humanity plus time, you get a certain destructive filth that separates us from what God intended all along. In fact, our disobedient behavior intensifies the deterioration of God's masterpiece, dulling the blues of the sky into darkness. See, in all that we do as humanity, we have marred the masterpiece. God created something beautiful and something holy, something pure in creation, and we marred his masterpiece. But in all that we did and all that we do to, to dull and to mar the masterpiece of God, God sent a restorer. God sent someone to fix all that we have broken. God sent someone to restore all that we have dulled and made dim. God, God wants it to be enlivened and brightened up again in this world, in this creation, and he sent us a restorer. See, the adoration of the Magi painting, it, it was restored by the Italian government, and, and it was restored by people who had no clue what they were going to find underneath all the filth. They had a, a certain learning curve in that restoration process as they worked through the whole piece. And, and all along the way, as they worked through it and they, they learned what they needed to do, they, they uncovered a beauty that none of them had ever known and none of them had ever seen as they worked through all of the grime. Now, now, the opposite is true of Jesus Christ. There was no learning curve with Jesus. See, three times we are told in Scripture that Jesus was the agent of God in creation. You have those listed on your listening sheet. Uh, John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. They, they all state that, that in the beginning, Jesus Christ was there a part of that creation in the Godhead. Because often we think about the, the origins of Jesus around that same adoration of the Magi time. But Christ in the Godhead preexisted that earthly form. Christ was first. Christ was before the grand masterpiece of creation. So what that means, and, and to better understand in our Christology, what that means is there's no learning curve with Jesus Christ. We marred the masterpiece. We made it ugly. And God sent this restorer in the person of Jesus Christ. But Jesus wasn't surprised by any of it. He, he wasn't surprised at how filthy it had become because he was always there. And he's not surprised by the beauty that it can be because he was there in the beginning as creation happened. He's not amazed at the beauty of perfection because he's already seen it. And most importantly, in all of that, Jesus knows exactly what we need for complete restoration this morning. Whatever you need as a fix in your life, Whatever this world needs for complete restoration and holiness, Jesus already knows and has the answer in front of us for complete restoration. Jesus knows every inch of filth that is caked over our lives, knowing the exact point of perfect restoration. He would never push it too far because he knows where we need to be. And so this is, this is the part of the work of Jesus Christ. He's clearing and he's cleaning our lives towards this perfect kind of restoration. 
But there are times, there are times in our lives we don't even realize the generations of grime that we have muddying our lives beyond recognition. We don't see it, but Jesus can see that grime and see through it to the heart of us. And Jesus came to make things right, to make things perfect. In this marred masterpiece of creation, Jesus knew what he had to do. And here's the, here's the reality of that whole situation. For, for this marred masterpiece to be made right again, th- there's only one way that that happens, and it's by the blood of Jesus Christ, right? That Jesus had to go to the cross, and that's where our restoration is found, is in that blood of the cross. See, that, that was the process, and we have to understand this whole process before we dive into the, to the particulars of the text. The process was God created this grand masterpiece of creation, and we marred it with our sinful behavior. And as we marred it, God sent a restorer, and that was Jesus Christ on the cross. And so, there, so the blood of Jesus is still slowly purifying this creation that God had made it's in, into its intention to what God wants it to be. Now, practically, all of this is summed up in the most beautiful verse of the week. And it isn't on our listening sheet. It's in your, it's in your uh, scriptures. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 8. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. This is the weight of the text this week. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And so that's why we were made, that's why we were created. People often ask the question, why do I exist? And here is your answer, you exist for your God. And he continues, uh, we exist for him and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things. And again, we exist through him. It's through Christ. Uh, that we are able to exist. So this, this, is, this is the message of Scripture that we have before us this morning, that no matter what you have going on in your life right now, God has already set the restoration process in motion. Long before you ever knew that you needed the Christ, even yet while you were still enemies of our God, he set the restoration process in motion. He ordained that you would be fixed and restored he, he ordained that you would be redeemed this day and made right with God, perfect in his holy heaven again. That's what you have sitting in front of you, and it's already there. And, and, and further still, maybe, and maybe more in line with this week's text, Scripture reminds us, too, that no matter what the church is facing and no matter what the church is fighting about, God already has a plan for restoration In fact, God's plan of restoration is already underway. You just need to get on board with it. Because what we see as you dive into 1 Corinthians, this is a disunified church. This is a church in dysfunction that needs their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They they are fighting and they are hurting. In fact, the, the ugliest corners of creation are the ones in which the church is fighting. Because those same kind of fights that are happening in 1 Corinthians 5 and 8 and 10 and on, those same kinds of fights still linger today in the church, and it gets ugly. But, but even still, unto them, God pours the blood of Jesus Christ and says, I have the way, the truth, and the life has already been sent. Now, with that stated, who is our Christ? Now we come to the historical reality of 1 Corinthians 8. 
So in 1 Corinthians 8, and then we'll move into 10, but in 1 Corinthians 8, the church had gotten stuck in the minutia of fighting over what meat they could eat. And that, that begs the question, then. We, we've heard all of this, the, these true statements of our Lord, Jesus Christ. What in the world does Jesus Christ have to do with eating meat? But that was the fight going on in the church at Corinth at this time. And they were facing a real dilemma. Because some in the church were saying it was okay to eat this meat. And to be fair, this, this meat had been sacrificed to pagan idols. And it had been a part of pagan rituals. And, and it made its way into the market and people were eating it. And some of the Christians in the church were saying, it's fine, go ahead, eat the meat. And there were others in the church that were saying, you can't eat that, it had been a pagan temple. And so we don't eat that meat. We only eat pure and holy meat. And so they were, they were going back and forth about, about what this means and, and what's this look like. And so th these that are over here are saying, it's perfectly fine to eat the meat. They, they, they were right. Their, their argument is found in, in chapter 8, verse 4. It's also found in chapter 10, verse 26. They said, you know this. You know what Christ has done. Christ has come down, and he has redeemed all of this. He's redeemed all of creation. He's redeemed every cow that's ever walked the face of this earth. It, it's all pure, and it's holy. It, it's all God. Th those pagan temples where this meat is coming from, that's, that's all fake. It doesn't matter. There's nothing really over this meat. In fact, they would say it's, it's, it's all just a facade. It's, it's, it's like a castle at Disney World. It's going to fade in due time. It's, it's not real. And so if it's fake, it doesn't matter if we eat it. And they, they continue on in chapter 10. Everything in this world is made by God. And it's for God. Even the stuff that's been misused in pagan temples, it's all God's anyway. And so we can, we can go in there. We can eat that meat without guilt. Now, to be clear, and this is what we need to understand, this, this, is, this theology is absolutely sound. It's, it's correct. There's only one God, and all that this earth contains is his. However, their correct theology was applied incorrectly. And it's partly, partly due to this fact, that this restoring work of Jesus Christ, that Jesus has come and to restore the marred creation, um, this restoring work of Christ is still ongoing. It's not complete yet, and it won't be complete until the day of our Lord, until Jesus Christ comes back again. And so that, 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 that's still happening. The restoration's still going on. And in that, that means there's still blatant sin happening in this world. Uh, there are souls to, to still be saved, right? There, there are souls to be redeemed, and, and there's still real evil at work in this world sort of spewing filth across God's masterpiece. He's saying all of that is still happening. And, and, and to, be, to be clear, uh, the text kind of goes, goes beyond this in, in other ways too. And so I, I want you to hear what he's saying in chapter 10, uh, verse 20. So this, this is beyond our text. So if you look up in 10, uh, 10, verse 20, look up with me. No, but I say... So this is, this is Paul talking about the, these meats that's been in the, the temple sacrifice. That these things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord in his jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? And, and so you, you get this sense that there's, there's something else going on, right? You, you can surely uh, make the argument that the definitive last stand was Christ on the cross. 
right? Our Lord and Savior defeated sin and death on the cross, and you would be absolutely correct. But the restoration of creation is still underway, and these antagonistic demons will not surrender until the day of the Lord. And so you can claim Jesus' victory is true and, and, and walk through that and walk through the filth that the demons spew. But, but why would you do that? Why would you submit to that? Why would you tempt yourself and dine with demons? Because that's what's happening over here. Those pagan rituals, those are fake. The temple is fake. The idols are fake. But there's real evil behind those idols. And, and really, you're right, God could save you from them. All of those, those demons and that evil is powerless in comparison to God. But why would you risk it? Why would you walk through those evil steps and in those evil places when God has something greater in store? Right, so this is a matter of soteriology. This is a matter of, of salvation uh, of, of yourself. Right, and this, this is not just a matter of what we're going to have for dinner tonight. But, but even something as minor as the ingredients of your next meal matter in the plan of salvation. That's where Paul's going with all of this. this. This does matter in the grand scheme of salvation. Salvation for yourself or the others around you can be directly related to what you're having for dinner tonight. In fact, the salvation of many can be directly related to where you have dinner this evening. And so 1 Corinthians 8 and 10 both spell this difficult truth out for us. And so you have to, to understand where you fit into this process. So on a personal level, so this is back in chapter 8, as we're working through chapter 8, there, there were people that were going to have dinner in these pagan temples. And they were saying this was because of high Christology. I believe my God is great. I believe God has already redeemed this. So it doesn't matter if I'm over here and I'm eating this meat. But, but there's, there's great pain in that. Those, those idols, they don't exist, but the evil is real and it's active in this world. And, and the, the, those, those idols are a product of the handiwork of Satan. And though Satan be powerless before God, you are still weak in comparison. And there's, there's no need for you to live your life in a way that you tempt evil. So, so stay away from those situations where evil apparently resides. It's, it's really a matter of your own salvation. This is a matter of your own personal restoration. In fact, as you walk into a place where evil resides, it can, it can set you back decades into your own personal restoration. That evil can wreck your life, even as a Christian. Be careful. But, but even still, more importantly than that, as he, as he gets further into chapter 8, he says even more importantly than that are the people that are around you. Because even if you walk into a pagan temple like that and you are able to withstand the temptation and withstand the, the arrows of the evil one. There are many people around you that are watching your life, and not in a judgmental type of way, but people around you who value you and trust you. There are people around you who see what you do and, and want to do the very things that you're doing. And when you walk into a place like that where real evil resides, you are giving them permission to do the same thing too. And that's just, that's the fact of the reality of us living in community together, because that's what church is, that we're in this together. You're not in this on your own, that, that, that your salvation is tied up in the life of this church, and we are walking in this process together, this restoration that's happening around us. This is, this is Jesus Christ in work in us as individuals, and in work as the church as a whole. And so we're doing this together, but our own fleshly reaction to this is 
they, those people over there, they're responsible for their own actions. I'm not responsible for them. But hear me, that's not the biblical view. According to the text, you are responsible for their actions. Right? If we are a part of a church together, we are responsible for one another's actions. In fact, we work diligently to make sure that we are taking care of one another in this way. And we are keeping our brothers from sin and our sisters from sin. See, you are absolutely responsible to keep your sister or your brother in Christ from sinning. And, and there's, there's a deep reason why here. See, sin is such a terrible disease um, that, that Paul says here at the end of chapter 8, verse 13, it's the last verse of chapter 8, that if eating meat causes my sister or my brother to sin, then I'm going to become a vegetarian. This is that big a deal. I'm going to cut meat completely out of my life if you will not sin in that way. So he's saying, if your actions give someone else permission to sin, then you must stop immediately. We take sin seriously. See, there's two deep threads in that where Paul says, well, I'm just going to, if it saves you from sinning, I'm going to stop eating meat completely. There's two deep threads of why that happened. The first, we already hit on last week and before, like 1 Corinthians 5, that sin can never be tolerated in the church. We must rid the church of any and all filth that we are a part of ourselves or any and all sin that we see. In fact, sin is so destructive and deteriorates the church from the inside out in such a way that we have to go to extreme measures to stop it. In fact, sin cannot be let in the door because any way that it creeps in, it begins to tear us apart. So that's one thing. Sin's never tolerated in the church. And then the other thing, the other deep thread here is that in Jesus Christ's restoration, we, we saw a beautiful model of humanity. See, when, when Jesus came into this world, and became like us in, in humanity, and went to the cross in his death, that he was completely selfish, selfless. And for our sake, it's for each one of us in this room, for, for each one of us in this world, Christ bore the brutality of the cross. And that's true, and that's certain. And what that means for us, and where this text is going, so that means for you, that if we have to bear any brutality to keep a brother from sin, then we do it with great joy. If there's any brutality that I have to face and take on for your sake, then I will do it because that's the model that has been set for me in the person of Jesus Christ. So for our brothers and our sisters' restoration, we will do whatever we have to do. So Paul says, if I have to become a vegetarian, I'll become a vegetarian. Whatever I have to do for your sake, that's what I'm going to do. So that, that, covers, that covers your salvation, that covers the salvation of the church as it's happening in front of us. But, but even further, especially as we move into chapter 10 of this week's text, further in soteriologically thinking, we move to non-believers, right? So maybe we need to think through places here. So we, we've already talked about eating sort of meat in the pagan temple, right? So if there's a pagan temple and you go in there and you eat meat, uh, you need to abstain. That's, that's not where you need to be. You know the answer to that talking about eating sort of this pagan ritual meat in front of other believers. He said, abstain if it causes problems. You know, whatever you need to do, that's what you need to do. But then he shares this scenario where if you go and you're eating with non-believers, wherever that is, maybe a non-believer invites you to their home. He says, if you're having dinner with them and they put meat in front of you, don't ask where it came from. Just eat it with joy. That's what he says in 1027. Don't ask, just eat it. And it's to show them the love of Christ where, where you just 
you draw them in. The purpose of that dinner is so that you can share the love of Christ with them, and maybe they might be saved in this night. He says, but on the other hand, and in the same way, if they tell you this is meat sacrificed to idols, then you have the responsibility to abstain as an example of holiness. See, that's the difficult situation here in these texts. We, we want Paul to give us a blanket statement that just covers all. Tell me yes or tell me no. But the reality of life in Scripture is he can't give us a yes and a no here. And they're rarely blanket statements that cover every scenario. So you've got to trust the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Trust, trust what God is doing in your life. And so he says, like, if you're purchasing meat in the market, he says, don't eat it, or, or don't ask, and then you can eat it, and, and eat it with joy. But if you do ask, and they say it's from pagan rituals, then, then you abstain. And so, so all of that is to say that the greatest truths of God regulate the smallest moment of our life, like choosing what we're going to eat for dinner. It, it matters in the grand scheme of things. The, the insignificant tasks is, are where we see where, what we really believe. And it's in those minor steps you see how you can edify the church, where you, you can build up and do something for the kingdom of God. Or in the same way, you can really discourage the church and be destructive to the church. Or in the same way, it, it's something as simple as a dinner can be the very moment where the person of Jesus Christ is revealed to someone. Or at the same time, if, 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 there, if there's something happens in that dinner, the, the person of Jesus Christ can be hidden from them. And so it's, it's little decisions that you make in the morning, it's little decisions that you make throughout your day may have a dramatic effect on the kingdom of God. And in fact, that's how we need to think of all of this, whatever it is, whether it's eating meat or whether it's what we're doing tomorrow or what we're doing next weekend, all of those kinds of decisions, they do matter in the kingdom of God. And this is what we need to, to hear in this story as a church, that you are not to take your role in the kingdom of God lightly. You have a mighty and powerful role in the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. And because of that, your actions matter. The day-to-day -day things that you do matter for the kingdom of God. Your dinner matters in the kingdom of God, and we need to sort of reframe our life and reframe our schedule and reframe our work so that we live out in a way that glorifies God in all of it, because it does matter. There's some of us in this room, though, that we want to do this alone. We want to do faith alone, and, and we want to do just the way the world works alone. We want to be left to our own devices. But, but here's the reality of Scripture. You can't. You can't do this alone. You can't do salvation alone, and you can't do life alone. But you are called to walk in it with your church family. That, that we are all in this together. And the decisions that we make, the daily decisions that we make, not only affect us, but they affect the people that are in this room and are part of this church. And the decisions that we make affect the kingdom of God in all kinds of ways. And we need to be ready to account for those ways. Where my schedule this week is impacting the kingdom of God, it's either edifying the kingdom of God and building it up, or it's tearing the kingdom of God down. And so remember, for all of us, we're being restored. We, we are a part of this restoration process. And it's our disobedience in these matters that has marred God's great masterpiece. But as often and as terribly as we have marred God's great masterpiece, God has sent a restorer. 
And so in that, since God has sent a restorer, we have a choice that's before us this morning. We, we can choose to work with that restorer and see the beauty of creation and life again. Or we can continue to hide in the generational filth that destroys the beauty of our lives and the beauty of creation. And so we have that choice in front of us this morning. By the blood and the power of Jesus Christ, are, are we going to work with Christ in that restoration, the restoration of our souls and the restoration of the people around us, or are we going to hide in that grime and try to be those unseen figures? But you know this, but let's be reminded, those unseen figures, all of those things that we are hiding, they will be revealed one day. If not until the day of the Lord, they will be fully revealed, and we'll have to answer. But we have the opportunity now to come and make it right. Come. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this beautiful text. A light on the practical life of the ancient church. And Lord, we pray that we would learn from their struggle. And in that way, be restored in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.